Today on Truth Encounter, we're going to take a look at Revelation chapter 20 and discover how human beings will react to Satan's call for rebellion even after a thousand years of blessedness. What does this tell us about evil and the impotence of environment to conquer it? What does it tell us about what we need to do about the evil in our own lives? Let's turn in our Bibles to Revelation chapter 20 and join our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtson, for our study titled, Satan's Waterloo. Revelation 20 tells a really strange story. Last week I talked to you about a thousand years where Christ was ruling. I talked to you about a thousand years where your kids could play with cobras and they could have pet tigers and they could have pet lions and all that is just the prophet's way of saying, man, this is heaven on earth. This is a time where you don't have to have the Palestinian Israelis arguing in Camp David over who's going to own Jerusalem. Jesus will own Jerusalem. And for a thousand years, all the Old Testament prophecies will be fulfilled. Now you would expect after the thousand years was up, that there'd be no possible way that evil could get a hold. In other words, after a thousand years of goodness, you see the children of believers who make it through the tribulation period, the tribulation saints, some of them will make it through. They'll be in their natural bodies. So during a thousand years, they have a long time to repopulate the earth. So in the end of the millennium, you have all children, all the people on planet earth, go back to born-again, believing people that really know Jesus. You would expect after a thousand years, if we let Satan out, Revelation 20 says, after the thousand years were completed, that the dragon, Satan, was released. And I would expect the text to say, but he wandered through the earth, and he sought to deceive the nations again, but nobody would listen. Because they saw the incredible power of goodness. They saw the power of truth. They saw what the reign of Jesus would would produce. But it doesn't say that. It says that the dragon went to the four corners of the earth. And it uses the phrase Gog and Magog. Because Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is used as an incredibly powerful symbol of all the dark evil forces in the, in the ancient world, Gog and Magog stood for the area north of the Black Sea. It was the area that wasn't civilized. It was the area of the wild people. And in the ancient world, before all the world had been pioneered and, and every corner of this globe had been navigated and been tromped upon, in the ancient world, there was like a wall around the ancient empires. And when you got outside that wall, you were in no man's land. And they would always fear these horrible villains, these horrible masters masses of people that would come in, which, by the way, throughout ancient history did happen. For example, during the Middle Ages, you had the culture of the Middle Ages, and then the Northmen came in from beyond the walls, and the Northmen just raped and pillaged and murdered. So you got to have that kind of a mentality of there's this invasion from the darkness and the chaotic of this unknown place. Gog and Magog in Revelation is used of this, this, this darkness, this chaotic evil that's from all the four corners of the world. And what did it say? It says that Satan's able to gather an army that is pictured as being like the sand on the seashore. Like the sand on the seashore, the armies raised by Satan. And Revelation 20 pictures them attacking Jerusalem. 
They go up, it uses the phrase, they go up on the broad plains of the earth in Revelation 20. And the idea of an army mustering on the broad plains of the earth, it's like at the closing scene, at the big battle scene, they have a broad plain. In the ancient world, the armies would muster on a broad plain because their weapons couldn't shoot that far. And that will help you understand why they did some of the stupid things they did in getting all lined up. It was almost like a parade. Technologically, in the Revolutionary War, that's the way the equipment worked. And so you had to get your soldiers within proximity to each other in order to make an impact. So, But they would go up. And that was true for centuries until really the Civil War. So the ancient armies would go up on the broad plains... And they would muster, almost like a parade, getting ready for the big fight. So Revelation 20 uses that imagery of Satan mustering this gigantic army. And they go up on the broad plain. They go up to do battle against the Lord's beloved city, the city of Jerusalem. So here you have these armies, once again, just like they did during the Battle of Armageddon, at the end of the thousand-year reign, they are mustering again. And it says this. The breath of the Lord's mouth devoured them. We serve a Savior who by the breath of his mouth devours his enemies. Ultimately, evil will be fire-breathed and destroyed by the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus. And what that means is that he just speaks the word of judgment. Jesus is the one that said, let there be light. And there was light. If you're into astronomy... You worship a savior today. Like if you're an astronomer, you should go out this week and as you learn the wonders of the stars, it should cause you to get face down before your savior and you should be adoring him and worshiping him because your savior just said, let there be the stars and they came into existence. And all your field of astronomy is the gift to you from your beloved savior in heaven. But if you're his enemy, I want you to know that the same power that can produce galaxies at at just the sound of his voice, just the command of his words, that same Savior, if he's your enemy, just speaks the word and that's the end. And Revelation 20 tells us about Satan's Waterloo. It tells us about the fact that Satan, even after a thousand years' reign, is able to, to rekindle this dragon, this evil force, this chaotic force. He's able to muster people, and yet Jesus steps in, destroys the army with the breath of his mouth, and it says that he seizes Satan, this ancient serpent, and he takes him and throws him in the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. Those are the most precious words that we could hear this morning. Our enemy, though he's roaring like a lion, Though he's able to tear apart our lives at times, though he's able to cause some of our kids to wander, though he's able to keep our unbelieving friends under deception and hurt, that dragon, according to Revelation 20, is going to meet his Waterloo. That's what Revelation 20 is about. But what I want to leave you with is I want you to turn to Psalm 36, because in Psalm 36, the ancient writer David gave us an insight into why there needed to be Revelation chapter 20 that I just taught to you, why God allowed Satan to rise up and let him be released from his prison because God wanted to show us the virulence of evil. He wanted to show us the power of evil. And in Psalm 36, David starts out a thousand years before Christ came And he's already revealed to people back in the Old Testament the incredible nature of evil. And as you study about Satan being released, and you ask yourself, like I've been asking myself from the time I was a little kid, 
Why is it, like as I would hear Dr. M.R. Dehan teaching me about this great battle, this remustering of the evil forces at the end of the millennium, and I'd scratch my head and say, how could anybody join with him? That's crazy. I mean, that's totally irrational. And Psalm 36 explains to us why that takes place. Look what it says. King David says, I have an oracle. And the word oracle means I have an inspired message. And this is God's inspired message for you. It will help you understand about the nature of evil. You live in a society that thinks that evil is a joke. Comedians make big bucks joking about evil. Jerry Springer puts evil on the screen for hours and hours and hours every single day. And people laugh at it. We live in a society where we think that evil is a joke. And even as believers, we can think that it's, it's, not a, it's not an enemy. It's not something that we can't handle. It's something that we can technologically control. You have got to understand how powerful and deceptive evil is. Because that's why it was still able to grab something vulnerable in the human heart, even after a thousand years of peace. And David says, I have an oracle that's burning within my heart. David's anointed by the Spirit. And this is an oracle about the nature of evil. He says, I've got an oracle burning in my heart about the twistedness, the perversion, the rebellion against God. Look what he said. It's concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. To paraphrase, he says, I have a burden, an inspired message in my heart that I don't want you brothers and sisters to be naive about the true nature of evil. The very first thing that he says is that the first step into evil is that you begin to be arrogant and prideful and think you are the one that determines what is right and wrong. Look what he says. There's no reverence of God before their eyes. There's no fear of God. There's no dread of God. And that arrogance and that pride that causes them to turn away from the fear of God causes them to say this. For in their own eyes, they flatter themselves. They flatter themselves so much that they're no longer able to detect or hate what is sin. I want to ask you a question. Can you detect what is sin? And do you hate what is sin? I was reading an article in, a, in Theology Today, which is not a, it's a, it's kind of a general magazine about theology. And at, at the end of the magazine, there's an article written by a young pastor that was speaking to a friend out in L.A., out in California. And they were talking about morality. They were talking about sexual relationships. And this, this, this fellow that was writing the article was explaining to his friend that I'm under a covenant vow that I will not express myself sexually. I will not have intercourse until I make a holy covenant with the woman that I make a promise to that I'll be with them for life. How many of you think that's a pretty good vow? In this audience today, you think that's a good vow? You think that's, you think, how many think that's right? You know, that's right. That's good. How many of you parents think, man, let's, let's communicate that value? In this conversation, the person, after hearing about that, he said, I can't believe you could be so cruel. I can't believe that you would be so evil that you would keep yourself. You mean, you, you, have you gone with any girls that you cared about? Have you gone with any women that, that, that you really felt longings for? Have you felt any sexual attraction in those women? And the guy said, sure. I mean, I'm, I'm a human being. My heart's still beating on my chest. He said, well, I just can't believe that you would be so cruel as to keep yourself from giving the gift of your sexuality and expressing your sexuality. You know what that is? That's flattering yourself. 
Here's a modern man that says, I decide what the standards are. I decide the way things are. And, there, and the word that's used in Hebrew is that they're speaking smooth words. The words sound smooth. They sound so with it. And they're flattering themselves. So that that individual is calling wrong right and right wrong, and yet they're, they're, they're having the high moral ground. They think they're the ones that are on the high moral ground. Some of our kids, our kids are being raised in a society now. You go out, and, and even in the public school arena, you'll hear about the abortion debate. Those that are in favor of preserving the little lives, like right now, some of my, some of my friends that have been raised in our church, and they're now young mothers, they have precious little lives. Some of them, not just one, but two. Precious lives being shaped in their womb. And as the church family, we, we rejoice in that. And across our land, there are those that hold, we need to honor that little life growing and developing and maturing. And we need to recognize that that's a gift from the Lord. And therefore, it's wrong to go in there with forceps or wrong to give poison that destroys that life. It's wrong to do that. But in our society... The individual that says what I just said in large population groups in our society is said to be evil. It's said to be the bad guy. And what what Satan does is this. He takes a right-to-life person who bombed an abortion clinic, and he makes that symbolic of the whole movement, and that's the way Satan worked. And I want you to know that that's what David was talking about. The evil person knows how to use words, and they flatter. What I want you to see, that that's what David's exposing about the nature of evil. We begin to flatter ourselves. We think we're the ones that determine. I don't determine what's right sexually. I don't determine what's right in the courts of justice. We don't take 51% votes about what is right. What David is telling us is that there's no reverence for God. What he means by that is they've lost sight of the fact that God is the one who determines what's evil and what is good. And unless you read this book, unless you open yourself daily to this book and let God talk to you, I guarantee you that the smooth words of evil will flatter you. You'll be arrogant thinking you're part of the progressive new wave and you're going to find out that you no longer can detect evil and you no longer hate it. What I want you to realize is the reason that God has to, has to judge Satan at the end of time The reason that we're going to study about the great white throne judgment is that evil does become entrenched in the human heart. And unless someone comes to Christ, unless someone's delivered from it, it becomes an incredible eternal poison that is destructive and violent and hurtful and does terrible things. And we need to hate it just like a surgeon hates malignancy. We are part of an evangelical community that we don't detest evil anymore. We call evil good and good evil. And therefore, we don't understand the power of the gospel because we don't even know what we need to be delivered from. I want to ask you, have you been in this book enough so that you know God's heart about what is good and what is right so that you detest what you need to detest? The first step is to lose the fear of God. The second step is you start to, start to flatter yourself and you think you're the one that determines what's right and wrong. And then what happens, you begin to speak evil with your mouth. The words of your mouth are wicked and deceitful. You'll cease to do what is skillful and what is good.
What happens is you begin to have your minds polluted. You begin being filled with arrogance. You think you're the determiner of what is right. You think you're the one that knows in your heart. I've had one person after another says, I know this is right. I can feel it in my heart. That's flattering. That's speaking smooth words to yourself. It's one of the most, de- one of the most destructive, deceitful things you can do. And then what happens, you join with a lot of other people that agree with those smooth words that you're saying. And what happens, you become part of a group that's speaking wicked, deceitful things. You cease to do what is skillful and good in your life. And then you begin, even on your bed, you plot evil and you commit sinful court. You commit yourself to a sinful course and you do not reject the wrong anymore. That's why Satan had to be released because God exposed one last time that that's the nature of our heart. But that's the bad news. I want you just to see one line. It's often words of a song that we sing. But David turns the table in the next verse and says, Your love, O Lord, your loyal love, O Lord, to me reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. Your justice like the great deep. O Lord, you preserve both man and beast. How priceless is your unfailing love. What David realizes, he preached what Revelation 20 wanted to get across to you and what's going to be acted out in time is it looks like the dragon can win. It looks like he can be powerful and victorious. It looks like his smooth words are going to win. But what Psalm 36 told us is that when you compare the deceitfulness of evil the crookedness of of what evil does in our thinking and in our minds and how we're tempted to join it, when you compare that with the loyal love of God for you, there's no comparison. And what I want you to do is I want every one of you to make a firm commitment. What the gospel released you to do, what Jesus walked into your life to do, is to deliver you from self-flattery, from speaking wicked, deceitful words, from beginning to make evil plans. Instead, you're in a totally different kingdom. You're on a totally different wavelength. And you now open yourself up to the steadfast love of the Lord. And so that we begin to have a deep, humble fear of disobeying God. We have a deep dread of walking away from the beautiful plan of our Father. You see, every one of us need to decide which side of this thing we're going to be on. That's what Revelation has been challenging us. You have to decide, am I going to be one of the dragon's team or am I going to be part of the king of kings team? And we make that choice. That's the incredible thing. Our Father in heaven has given us that choice. Well, as for me and my house, we've decided to serve the king of kings. The breath of his mouth one day is going to destroy my arch enemy forever and ever. And all of the people that have joined him. Today, this week, I want the breath of his mouth to purge my heart. One of the things that scares me to death about you all is I have people every week that come into my office and says, this has to be right. I say, why does it have to be right? Show me in the word of God, you know, where this course of action is right, where this is what you really need to do. And and this is the skillful way to do it. I have people one after another say, I can feel it in my soul. Can feel it in my heart. You know what that is? That's the epitome of arrogance. You're saying, I determine what's right. I determine. There isn't any standard. I'm the standard. And when I feel it in my soul, then it's got to be the way it ought to be. And Psalm 36 exposed that that's going to deceive you. And I want you to know that I'm not your enemy. The thing that breaks my heart about that is that when I, when I talk like that and when I try to communicate like that... To, Brothers and sisters, the easiest thing for me to do 
would be to tell you we all need to love each other. There's nothing wrong with a homosexual lifestyle. If you want to live that lifestyle, that's the real you. Go for it, boy. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be happy. And, and man, you know, ladies, you can just live any lifestyle you want. And you don't have to be submissive in your families. And husbands, you don't have to love them like Christ loved the church. Just do your own thing. This is your life. You're only going to go around once. It would be great to speak to you like that on Sunday morning. Brothers and sisters, do you really want to hear that? Do you want me to do that to you? Brothers and sisters, you need to have doctors that tell you when this is unhealthy, this is sinful, this will hurt your body. The same thing is true on a Sunday morning. And what Revelation has done, it's kind of, whoa, it's kind of shaking us as a church family. It says, wake up, wake up. Evil is real. Righteousness is real. Jesus is real. The dragon is real. And let God's holy word breathe into your life every single day. Just listening, being in the presence of believers, listening to the word of God, the fact that you're here was such a wise, skillful thing because now the Holy Spirit has increased your ability to detect evil. And you're going to go out into this week and you're going to be protected and you're going to be filled with his power. But what I want to motivate you to do is don't just do it Sunday morning. Open your heart every single day. Because today you've learned there is this lion that will deceive you. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that we can already read ahead of time that Satan's going to meet his Waterloo. That even after he's released for a short period of time and the evil in the human heart's exposed, I'm so thankful, Lord Jesus, that he doesn't win. But Lord, my heart goes out to the multitudes that joined with him and were deceived. And I thank you that as we are here, that we're now living in a time of grace in a time when you're not breathing the fire of judgment and taking the life of your enemies. Lord, we want to bring as many of our friends, as many of the people on earth that we come in contact with, we want to bring them into the kingdom of light. Lord, I want to pray as we close that you would protect each one of those hearing my voice now from the incredible deceitfulness, the incredible seduction of modern pluralism that believes that man determines what is right and what is good and what is holy. And Lord, we flatter ourselves when we forget about your holy word and we do live in a world where those that are really committed to the Bible and those that really believe in Jesus are often painted as bigoted and violent and murderous. Help us not to believe that caricature that Satan makes. Help us to see through his evil and his deceptiveness. And I pray instead that we'll focus our eyes upon Jesus, the lamb that was slain for us. I pray that we would renew our commitment to him. I pray that we would be engaged in bringing his good news into people's lives so that every day, day by day, we might see the power of his grace in changing lives. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.